Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Why do we have so many denominations, so many churches? What's the difference between Protestants and Catholics? That general question. A lot of it is based upon the the reasons for it, is based upon the very subject that we're going to be discussing tonight, and that is the method of salvation. How one is saved. Because we don't all see it alike. I think there are no Christian groups, Catholics included, and even Church of Christ, and that's probably the two extremes on this subject, who would deny that salvation is by faith. We all believe that salvation is by faith, but there are groups who want to say that salvation is not by faith alone. Now we say as Baptists, and I believe firmly in my heart that the scripture teaches it, that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone plus nothing. The Church of Christ want to add salvation by faith plus baptism. The Catholics want to add salvation plus works. And you have all the variances in between. But I do not believe the scripture at all teaches when one sorts it all out and determines what the scripture is actually saying, that there is any other way to put it except to say that one is saved by faith plus nothing. And that's the Baptist position, at least the American Baptist position. There may be other Baptist groups that would not believe that. But if they don't, you'd better question them. Because I think the scripture is very plain, and I want us to notice the plainness of it in this chapter tonight. And I want to make this more a teaching session than a preaching session, although I'll probably forget that I'm teaching and start preaching, but you let that go. There probably are no groups but what would say that one is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there are those who want to say, but it's not by blood alone, it's got to be by something added on. There are no groups that I know of but what would say that the Bible is the authority of God, except there are some groups who want to add something else, for example the Mormons want to add the Book of the Mormon. Not is just the Bible the authorized Word of God, but the Book of the Mormon is. In the Catholic Church, it is not just the Bible that's the the authorized Word of God, it's also the Pope. So you see, there are those who begin to add some things, and even in the Baptist Church, there is still a lot of question, and even in our group, and I'm, I think probably even in this church itself, right here, 
there is some confusion as to salvation and how one obtains it. Does our salvation depend upon what we do or upon what kind of person we are? Now that is a basic question that Paul answers and deals with to the Romans. And in order to do that, he uses two Old Testament characters to make his point. And I hope that I can make these eight verses and another or two clear as to really what he's saying. And so the question is, what can one do to save himself? And Paul is going to say there is nothing you can do because salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has done the act that needs to be done in order for a person to be saved. He doesn't. We simply receive it in faith. Now that's that's the that's the bottom line. That's that's the whole premise of what he's saying. Now to make his point, he he goes back to Abraham. In verse 2 he says, if Abraham were justified, that is saved, if you can translate that word to, to that purpose, if Abraham were saved by works, by what he does, then he would have something to glory of, but not before God. You see what he adds on? He cannot stand, even Abraham himself, cannot stand before God and say, I ought to be saved because of the great man that I am. He can't make that claim, not before God. Nobody can. If you were going to pick out the greatest man of the Old Testament, I suppose there would be some differences of opinion as to who that might be. But I am sure that many of us would say that Abraham is the greatest person in the Old Testament. He was the father of the Hebrew nation. He did many, many marvelous things. Mighty works. And before me, that man is justified. That man ought to be saved because of the great man that he was and the great uh, works that he accomplished. But when he stands before God, he is in a different court. He has a greater judge than me. And he might stand before me and convince me that he is absolutely righteous, but he can't stand before God and make the same claim. And here is the difference. What standard are we using to determine our justification? When we put people uh, in front of us and start talking about them, and let's, let's take some people that we know well, let's say John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Eleanor Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, Richard Nixon. Now I'm going to skip Gary Hart, Jim Baker. 
And we'll skip again. George Washington. All names that we know. And for the most part, unless you have some information that maybe is not generally known, many of these men, John F. Kennedy is held up in history as a great man, as is Washington, Johnson, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, all of these mighty presidents. But anybody in a, a position of high office, of prominence, of high visibility, must undergo the scrutiny of the public and be torn to bits and have somebody looking into their closets and under their beds and into their bank accounts and into everything that they ever thought or did or even considered is under scrutiny. It is almost impossible, and I think it probably is impossible, for any person to undergo the kind of scrutiny that these men that I have pointed out have had to undergo without falling flat on their face. Yes, I put George Washington in that group. It is reported that he died of syphilis. I don't know if he did or not, but he had syphilis. The facts are, at least the rumors are, and I think some of the facts are, that John F. Kennedy was not exactly of high moral character as we had supposed him to be. The history books talk about White Eisenhower as having an affair with someone in his army. We know the fall of Richard Nixon. We know the fall of Gary Hart. We know the fall of Jim Baker. But put anybody you want under the same kind of microscope how many can stand. Put yourself under this kind of public scrutiny of reporters dogging everything you do, can you stand the pressure? I guarantee you I don't want that kind of pressure on my life. I don't want somebody taking anything that I may have done or did do, whichever. Telling the whole world about it. But this is exactly what we would have to do with Abraham if we are going to declare him righteous before God by that which he did. And you would have to undergo complete scrutiny. The microscope of God would have to be focused upon him to see if he were pure. Those of you who have looked through the microscope, maybe like me, have been extremely shocked to think that you have placed something absolutely smooth, such as a piece of paper, under that microscope to discover that it is in fact a very rough piece of material. It is not smooth. It has flaws in it. 
that smooth skin that we sometimes talk about people have is not smooth at all when you really examine it. That pure life, that's uh, a person who is in the, the limelight, can look very rough and very unkept and very unrighteous when the microscope of God is focused upon his life. And he comes out so impure that he cannot by his own self, by himself, stand in the judgment of God and be declared righteous, for he is well under the scrutiny that God has placed on him. Much rougher there than the scrutiny that society has placed upon these men that I have just mentioned. There's Mrs. Mapes here in my Sunday school class when we point one finger forward. There's at least three pointing back toward us. We cannot get away from that kind of scrutiny. So the point is, God sees the flaws that are made by sin, and the scripture points these out, even of Abraham himself. And so the point is, if my salvation is dependent upon my physical life, the way I have lived it and will live it, I absolutely will be lost, because I cannot match God's expectations. I can't. The flaws are there. Now look at what he says in verse 3. What says the scripture? Paul points out to the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now right there is a verse that is absolutely important. It's a quotation of Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. It was not his works that made him righteous. It was his belief in God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Salvation by works, which many churches will advocate, depends upon the sinner being capable of overcoming all the deficiencies of life and standing before God pure in his own right. Salvation by grace, which we preach, which the scripture teaches, I think, unquestionably, depends upon Jesus Christ doing something in our spirit and giving us grace, giving us salvation, not that we have earned it, but that he has simply given it to us. Those two things I think we must understand when you are talking with people who believe which you can be saved by being morally good. Put them out of the microscope and you will discover that we can't make it. They will discover we can't make it for all of us with themselves. If one is saved by works, he were under works. Some believe. God will give that person a fair trial. And as the person stands before the judgment seat of Christ, 
God, what is one asking? How do you plead? And the person who lives by words will say, I plead not guilty. And the judge will say, then let the evidence speak. And when the evidence is brought forth, all the information is in, then you will be discovered indisputably that a person who is not led by words because he cannot match God's expectation. But if a person believes that he's saved by grace as we do, and we are under grace to the something that God has given us, we'll stand before the judgment, and he says, how do you plead? And we're going to say, we plead guilty. We are guilty. But we ask for your mercy. We beg for mercy. And God will count our faith as righteous. And give us Give us pardon. All right, that's what he says about about Abraham. Now look at David. John 4, 6. David, some of you may have placed as one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. Maybe he is your greatest man. Well, I'll tell you one thing about David. He was the greatest sinner in the Old Testament. Well, they're indisputable. There's no one a worse sinner than David. He was covetous. He was a adulterer. He was a murderer. Now, you know, that's pretty bad when you get all three of them on your record. See, he was on his rooftop taking an afternoon stroll when he looks around into the courtyard in the neighboring house and he saw a woman taking a bath. Now the woman had no reason to be taking a bath out of the open where nobody could see her from the top of the roof unless she wanted to attract attention. So I will not give Bessie with a first bit. I'll slap. She's guilty. You should have all built his home age food and not enforce exactly what she was, but you David. And he, he sees her and he has to help her. And so he sends his servants over to bring her and school. They get together and they uh, commit to adultery. And suddenly, Bathsheba discovers that she's pregnant. It is not repulsive. Because he has been in battle for months in David's army. Couldn't be his. So I'm reading in between the lines. He swears to David on one occasion. I was just to walk to the way and just what? Figures. The best way to do it is to put Uriah Bashir 
There's a couple of verses that I think are in chapter 12 that, that are extremely important. David is talking to Nathan about his prophet, the sin that he has committed. David said to Nathan, Nathan, in verse 13 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Now I want you to notice what happened. The Lord put away his sin. David did not put away his sin. You see that point? It is the Lord that forgives sin. It's the Lord that puts it out of our life. It is not for ourselves and expelling sin from our life. The Lord does it. The Lord put away the sin, and he said, and thou shalt not die. The only reason David did not die for his sin is God forgave him his sin and did not require him to die. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.